You're listening to a sermon audio from Cypress Church. You can listen to more sermons on our website or by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. We hope you enjoy the sermon and invite you to attend one of our services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Well, good morning. I'm Ron Jackson, one of your associate pastors here, and I'm what you get when the offerings fall below a certain line. (laughs) Check your bulletin, Mike's on strike. So if it becomes a hunger strike, hold on. You could lose a few, and so could I. Uh, One of the things I get to do here at the church is help with some of the belonging ministries with baptism and membership and all. And once in a great while, I have a chance to come and share with you, and I'm delighted about doing that today. I just want to say to you, though, since this weekend's been a bit of a kind of a, a, a wobbly one, that if we have a wobble during this service, it's not me, okay, although I do think I have a mighty prayer, but it's not me, please don't rush to get your kids. Our youth department and our children's department know exactly what to do. They will safely get your children and everybody out of the building, no problem, and uh, you can follow me out those back doors because uh, I don't want these speakers or this table behind me to uh, take me out. But relax. We've got everything under control, and, and God's going to be with us here today. Today we're going to look at a promise of God, a few promises of God in regards to his children, and that's you and me. Jesus says a lot of things and gave us a lot of promises that you and I don't always want to believe in. We think they're for everybody else, but not for us. We think that the God's promises of blessing and peace and goodness are for those parents that raise kids that never get into drugs, that never rebel, that go to Christian colleges, want to go into the ministry, become missionaries or whatever, but not for us that have kids that just struggle along, where the biggest victory of our life is getting through high school. They graduated, and you can let your breath out, but then they don't move out. (laughs) And you take another breath and go, Okay, now let's talk about what it means to get a job. But we're the kind of people that God wants to bless and work with. We're the ordinary people, not just the ones that can memorize the the scriptures and, you know, they they know all the Ten Commandments and they can, uh, um, you know, uh, know the apostles and all that, read their Bible every day. But God is an everyday God that loves us and cares for us. And when we're going through tough times and we're weeping over our spouse that's leaving us, or a family that's crumbling. Jesus is right there, and he's not saying, I told you so. You married poorly. You made a bad decision. But Jesus is saying, I can see you through this. I am here for you. I love you, and we'll get through this together. He is the type of God who loves us and cares for us. So as we wander from our walk with God, let us know that God still keeps his promises to us no matter what. And there's a great little book in the Bible we're going to look at today that illustrates how God takes care of those even when they're not exactly what we would call in the center of God's will, although frankly that term center of God's will, there's really no left side or right side. We're in God's will because he loves us. So would you join me in prayer? Precious Father, we come today with lots of images and concerns and busyness in our mind. We would ask, Lord, that you would clear our minds of this, that we would think about this message as not just something to listen to and get through, but to recognize us to speak to our hearts, that we might hear the word of God clearly, 
that your spirit would breathe upon us, that we would sense your presence in our lives. And Father, that presence is one of a loving God. It is one who cares. It is one who will fulfill his promises for us. Give us that hope. Give us that peace. Give us that courage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Does anybody recognize the name Katniss Everdeen? Okay, somebody yell out. Hunger Games, that's right. She's a young gal in the Hunger Games. It's a three-book series. There'll probably be four movies, though. A three-book series where Katniss volunteers to go to a gladiatorial-type experience, a fight to the death, to protect her younger sister. She's a wonderful female heroine. She does it all, and somehow she survives through all of this, becomes a reluctant leader in the process of doing that. But so many young girls in America love that book. I know I've read them, um, but uh, <laughs> I found them fascinating. I read all the books, and then I began to see the movies, and I then began to criticize the movies, what wasn't in the movie and all that. But uh, you really appreciate Katniss and uh, just the story behind it, and here's a strong female woman who becomes a hero in that regards. She's a victor, but reluctantly so. How many can recognize the name Beatrice Pryor? Another one over there. You read a lot, don't you? That's good. Who's Beatrice? She's in the movie Divergent. And the one thing you learn about the movie Divergent or the book, there's four big words you've got to learn. Uh, they're all part of this group here, but Beatrice is again a young female heroine who because she's born with some unique abilities to think in a unique way her life is in danger because in this future world where Beatrice lives you have to think in one of five ways and as a divergent or different person she can think more than one way she kind of thinks outside the box and that's dangerous so she has to be very careful that no one finds out about that. Well, Hollywood loves to give us these heroines and all that's going on in their lives and such, but the Bible beat them to it. In the Bible, we're going to find a story about a very young Jewish girl. She's an orphan being raised by her uncle in a foreign land. Talk about a setting for a story. But she too will face life and death decisions. She will go from a shy young girl who gets involved in a beauty pageant to a queen in a harem to a leader and will save her people. Her name is Esther, and there's a book in the Bible for her. If you have a Bible just like mine, this begins on page 519. Well, no, okay. But if not, let me show you how to find Esther really, really easily, by the way. If you don't have a Bible and would like to follow along, and by the way, spoiler warning here, you can read the entire book of Esther as I preach through it. The band said they were going to do that um, rather than listen to me, and that's fine. I don't care about the band. But, uh, <laughs> but if you need a Bible, they're coming down the aisles. They'll give you one. This is a loner Bible. It means you can look at it. You can read it. Don't underline it, please. Uh, but you can look at it, and when you're done, leave it on your chair. And if you really want your own Bible, we have Bibles to give away. But how do you find the book of Esther? You don't have one of those electronic things. Close your Bible completely. Okay, open it up right in the middle. You should be in Psalms. If you're in Psalms, hopefully, unless you have a really large concordance, go to the Psalm number one. So go backwards to Psalm number one. 
The next book right there is called Job, or from Canada it's called Job. Uh, but it's called Job. Go to the end of Job, go back to Job chapter 1, and voila, there is the book of Esther. And so we're, it's only 10 chapters. It's a very interesting story about a young girl. So let me give you a brief history to set this up. And I know history is kind of like, oh, no, not again. Um, I happen to like history. I know you probably don't. I don't care. Um, <laughs> no, I, I do care. So I'm going to try to give you the highlights and make it interesting for you. Okay, first of all, a brief background. This marvelous nation of Israel that God called out from Egypt and sent into the land and established them and gave them a, a, a capital city and a temple to worship at was prospering for a long time. But soon after Solomon passed away, the kings of Israel were not worth the powder to blow them up. They were worthless. They worshiped foreign gods. They didn't attend to the worship. They weren't good leaders. And king after king failed, so much so that Israel had a civil war. And they divided into two parts, the northern part and the southern part. They were a divided kingdom. They were unhappy with everything. And finally, the end begins to come. Nebuchadnezzar comes with his army and captures all of Israel and takes them into captivity. Now, what Nebuchadnezzar does is, one, he takes everything out of the temple, all the gold, all the beautiful things in there. If it looked nice, he took it and took it back to Babylon. He then burned the temple. All the wooden structure within it was destroyed. He then burned the city gates of Jerusalem. So it was totally destitute. Like burning the city gates would be like if somebody took all the doors and windows out of your house, how comfortable would you sleep tonight, even if you had enough blankets? It's not the warmth or the coldness. It's the security, wouldn't it be? You'd be a little bit fearful. Every little bump or knock or whatever you'd hear, you'd wonder who would come into the home because you have no doors to keep them out, no windows to protect you. So all this was laid bare in Israel, so no one wanted to inhabit the city of Jerusalem. It was ripe for everybody looting and taking what they wanted to. And as they were being taken into captivity, the reason the Jews were being taken into captivity is in those days, kings didn't always just kill everybody. They wanted people to run their vast kingdom, and Nebuchadnezzar had a pretty good kingdom. It went from Ethiopia, down south of Egypt, all the way to Pakistan, all the way through Turkey. Huge. And it needed people to run it. And the Jews excelled in reading and in writing. They were people of the book. Every Jew could read and write. That was their job. That's what they do when they go to the temple. That's what they went to the synagogue. They would read and they would write. In fact, the Jews had a word for people that couldn't read or write. Barbarian. If you could not read or write, you were a barbarian. And if you were a Jew, you were a shame. You could not read or write. So obviously, you had this great prime thing of lawyers and priests and a, and a kingly royal family. He took them all to Babylon, and the people of Israel are left without anything to lead them all. And when they left all this, they were left with a heavy heart as well. Not only had their temple been gone and their capital taken away of, because most Jewish males had memorized the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, this is what they remembered. This is what was mumbling under their breath as they were being taken away and changed to Babylon. From Deuteronomy 28, Moses says to the people, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, 
all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will drive you and your king out of the land and into a nation unknown to you or your fathers. And the Lord will scatter you among all the nations from one end of the earth to the other. As they were being led away, they knew this promise of God had been fulfilled. They had not been righteous. They had not followed the commands of God. They had gone on their own way. But God is also a God of promise. And as they're being led away, this very unusual prophet called Jeremiah is standing outside the gates of Jerusalem, or this now just a smoldering mess, and he proclaims to the people of Israel as they're being taken away, God says, the days are coming. I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave to their forefathers to possess. You will be becoming home. That captivity lasted 70 years. And finally, one of the kings in Babylon uh, finally said, okay, you guys want to go back. Remember the story of Nehemiah and Ezra? Those guys take a remnant back. Thousands of people leave captivity and go back to Israel. But they're going back to a devastating place. Vineyards that had not been tended to for 70 years. Homes that probably had squatters living in them. No sheep pens, nothing, nothing done. It was a wasteland. The land had not been plowed. Nothing had been done. Jerusalem was completely without gates or a temple. But Nehemiah and Ezra were going back to build it. We're talking pioneer days all over again for these people. And thousands went back. But what's interesting, thousands more did not. They had gone into Babylon, or now the Persian Empire, and had decided to stay. They got government jobs. <laughs> they were, you know, you start working for the government, you know, at a certain level, it's going to, hey, I'm, I'm, good, I'm good here, you know. I don't want to go back to being unemployed. So they stayed there in uh, Persia, and uh, they just feel they're not going to go back because their life had become good there. And there was some real animosity to those who went back to Israel. They were the righteous Jews. To the ones who stayed, you sold out. You sold out. You've married uh, Persian women. You're doing a Persian job. You're not going back to Israel. You're nothing. You're dirt beneath my feet. A real anger between the, the, the people that left and those that stayed. And those that stayed did have a bit of a guilty conscience. They knew in their heart they should have gone back, but they chose to stay where they were and do their jobs. Okay, now, now we're in the book of Esther. All that was prelude. Now here's the book of Esther. Character number one, the king is Asuarius. What? Asuarius. Okay, or just say Xerxes. The history tells us Xerxes was a pretty powerful king. In fact, the, the, say he was the tallest and most handsome of the Persian kings. That's why I call him dad. Uh, he was the most ambitious and ruthless ruler of all the people in Persia. He was devastating. He was also a very jealous man. He didn't want to share his power or share anything with anybody. He wanted everything to be about him. He was so braggadocious and so powerful, he was going to make up for a failure of his own dad. Now, Hollywood's helped us out with this. We're not going to go too much in detail here. Remember the movie five years ago called The 300? About those wonderful six-pack ab guys, every one of them, you know, that, that fought the Persians there, 300. They just held them for months and months until they finally were betrayed and all killed. By the time that King Darius had gotten through Thermopylae 
and had cut in. He was so wiped out, he burned Athens and went home. Just It was a defeat for the Persians. His son now, Xerxes, is going to go back. He's coming with a navy. New movie just came out, Battle of Salamis. What does he do? The Persians attack the Greeks again, and they lose again. So now here is Xerxes back home. His dad got beaten up by the Greeks. He got beaten up by the Greeks. He is a pretty unhappy guy, all right, because kings are supposed to conquer. One other thing about Xerxes you should know is he is a huge, top-level drunk. Throughout this book, you see him drinking, 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 drinking um, all the time. And because of that, I think you find out he's asleep at the wheel or drunk at the wheel, whatever you want to say, but he's just destroyed. Now, before he goes to the battle in one of his drunken episodes, he decides to have his present queen, Vashti, come in and kind of dance for the men. Hey, show my buddies just how quite a cool moves you have. And the queen says, no. You don't say no to the king. And when all the r- rulers around uh, King Xerxes heard the king, what she say? She, she said, no. She said, Xerxes, you must do something about this. If our wives found out, we're cooked. The king says, your wives are your problem. They go, no, king, it's your problem. Save us from our wives. So Xerxes finally says, okay, King Vashti, you're fired. Go back to the harem and never come out again, which is exactly what she had to do. She didn't lose her head as far as we know, but she lost her her queenship. Then Xerxes goes off to the battle, comes back. Things are bad. All over, they're bad for him. So he's depressed. Never want to be depressed around a king. Heads will roll. So finally, this, again, these, super, these so smart supervisors around him are going to say, you know what you need, king? You need a Miss Universe pageant. And he kind of goes, that's not a bad idea. They say, we'll get all of the most beautiful young versions throughout all of Persia to come and parade before you, and you get to pick a new queen. And Xerxes goes, give me another picture. I like that idea. (laughs) Now, this takes a long time because Persia is such a big nation, it takes a year for the word to get out. And all the virgins, all these young ladies begin to be gathered there in 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 Susa. Now, we'll leave it at that. The girls are coming in, checking in, getting their numbers, getting their hair done. Okay. The second person of our story is Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jew. And he is at the gate of the city of Persia. Now, let me explain something about gates you may understand. You think you've got a pretty powerful gate in your back gate to your house or something like that? These gates were massive. In fact, the gate was not just a single thing on hinges. The gate was about a three-story structure, about 300 feet long, that was between the two walls, and the first floor was where everybody just walked through. Come on through, come on in. The second floor had a huge hole in it and, and walkways around the edges. That was for the soldiers to sit on duty because if there was somebody did something wrong or bad, they could throw a spear down through that hole and kill them or drop a rock or, you know, bow and arrow, pour oil on them. The third story on some of these places is where they kept all the equipment, the rocks, the oil. So this gate was massive. It wasn't just a little swinging gate. It was a big thing you had to get through. Now, in front of the gate was about two city blocks of little huts and all that, like a long, like a mini mall. 
And in this mini mall were people that would be money changers to help you figure out, you know, make your exchange for uh, Babylonian money. Uh, also, you know, camel repair, uh, <laughs> whatever you needed along that line. And also there were judges. Now, everybody wanted to go to the king to have the king decide right and wrong, you know, decide between my brother and I. Well, you didn't really want to go before the king because if you didn't present your case just right, you'd both lose your head. So when they would go to the gate or to the city gates, there were lawyers. And as far as we can tell, I guess Mordecai was a lawyer or a judge. And he would sit there, and for a certain fee, they'd both pay him. He would listen to their case, adjudicate it, and they would leave. He could sign the documents, and it's kind of like, we're done. Kind of the Judge Judy of his day. That's where Mordecai was. And Mordecai was very obviously a Jew. And so that's where he was at the city gate. He also had a very compassionate heart because apparently his brother or his sister had passed away and he was raising a little orphan girl named Esther. So he brought her into her home as a very young little girl and Esther um, is to be entered into the, king, the, the universal contest for uh, wives but there's something unique about her. The Bible says that she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Now, if the Bible says that, in the original Hebrew, it goes, whoa! <laughs> she was hot. And somehow Mordecai says, listen, you're single, you're Jewish, you're kind of good looking, I don't have a college fund, I suggest you enter into this universe contest and see what happens here. Well, uh, it wouldn't be such a bad prospect because all the women that go into this thing, by the way, it took them a year once they got there, uh, six months in oils and ointments, the Bible says, then six months with fragrances. Lots of, lots of waxing, probably lots of hair stuff, you know, a lot of makeup. You know, just think of the sales. Of, you know, if you're an Avon lady there, you know, wow, perfect. Um, <laughs> so the girls are going through this for 12 months. Why 12 months? To make sure none of them were pregnant, for one. They were all truly virgins. And then they all cleaned up and ready for the king to see. And then the king would have them come in one at a time, maybe one every week or one every two weeks, whenever he kind of got over his drunken stupors and all that. And if you lost, the worst thing that happened to you, and it wasn't all that great, you would end up in his harem for the rest of your life. Now, being in the harem wasn't a great thing because it meant you were cut off from your family, you would never see your mother and father again, you would never have contact with anybody on the outside you were literally locked into a golden cage. Neiman Marcus sees candy, the spa Zumba classes, it's all there for you. But you cannot ever see your family again, and you can never leave the harem, and the only time you'd ever leave the harem is if the king remembers your name and calls for you. So many of these women would go into the harem, have their one time with the king, and then disappear into that harem. What a terrible, difficult choice that was for many of them. Because I'm sure most of them had pretty good minds and wanted to do more than just sit around and look pretty. Um, so that was the thing that, that uh, Esther was up against, all these girls. Well, Esther had a kind of a unique ability. Everywhere she went, people were impressed with not just her beauty, but just her ability to make friends her ability to connect with people. So I think Esther had a quality about her that was more than just good looks. I think she had a great brain. And the, and the eunuchs who were watching over the harem kind of liked her. 
So that's Esther. She's getting all ready to become queen. We have the king. And she makes it. She becomes queen. And what's wonderful about it is that when she becomes queen, King Xerxes is so happy, he forgives everybody for one month of taxes. Now, what has old Mrs. Obama ever done for you? <laughs> I've never had my taxes forgiven for a month, you know. But when Esther becomes queen, they just stop all taxes for one month. It's a great party and all that. And wow, how about that? A quiet Jewish girl becomes king. And as she goes to become king, Mordecai says this to her. Whatever you do, Esther, don't tell anybody your heritage. Don't share that you are Jewish. Win it on your own. See what happens. So Esther had done that. No one knew that she was Jewish. Our fourth character is Haman. Haman is a Jew hater. All of his life he hated Jews. Why would he do that? Well, frankly, Haman should never have existed. Really, he shouldn't have been born. Haman, the Bible says here, is from the tribe of Amalek. Who are they and who cares? All right, let's brief history here. Amaleks were a tribe of people living around Israel at the time. And when God was trying to clean up the land of Israel, God told King Saul, attack the Amalites and wipe them out. Take nothing. N-O-T-H-I-N-G. Nothing. What part of that don't you understand, Saul? <laughs> Saul should have said, uh, what's nothing really mean? He attacks the Amalites, and he starts destroying them as best he can. But halfway through the battle, I guess, or those weeks of fighting, he just loses heart. Oh, fooey with this war thing. I'm tired of it. These guys got great-looking cows. Look at their sheep. and they're just magnificent sheep. And Saul just says, okay, tell you what. I don't think God meant everything. I'll take all the sheep and all the cattle, and I'll give some to God. I'll, I'll tithe 10%. If I win the lottery, I'll give God 10%, I promise. I just have to win the lottery. Well, Saul thought he won the lottery. He's going to give 10%. That's not what God said to Saul. He said, destroy them all. So a few days after Saul makes peace with the Amaleks, the prophet Samuel comes to Saul and says, so how'd the battle go? Fine. And Samuel goes, what's that beeping I hear? What's that baying I hear? What's in your backyard? Oh, a few cows, a few chickens, a few, you know, little things. Where'd they come from? The Amalek king made him a gift to me, you know. And Samuel says, I come from God. And he says this, you're through. Your son will not be king. You will not be king. I'm going to go appoint another because you can't follow what I said to do. So, what does it have to do with Haman? He is an Amalek. So when Nebuchadnezzar conquers Israel and takes everybody back, he brings everybody, not just the Jews, even some Amaleks. And they have a long history. If you've known anything about modern history today, when certain tribes and people get their land back, they remember wars from 300 years ago. And they start fighting, you know, Serbia? Because that was 300 years ago. People, get over it. But they fight and they hate one another. Haman is much the same way. Haman becomes the second most powerful man right behind the king, Xerxes. And Haman is pretty smart. He knows how to manipulate the king, do things for the king, because frankly, the king is probably drunk out of his mind most of the time. He's unhappy with most things he's doing. But the king says this when Haman becomes the leader. 
king says, okay, Haman's my second command. I want you all to bow to him when he comes in and out the city gates. Remember that city gate, the big gate, and all the people down there? And when you bowed in those days, it was not just a bow down. You were supposed to lay down, prostrate your hands in front of you, and your face in the dirt or whatever you were on, a mat or whatever. That was the only way you were supposed to acknowledge Haman was the king's messenger. He was that important. So he's going in and out of the gate all the time, and there's this one guy who's in the gate who's not bowing down. He won't even sit down to tie a shoe as Haman goes by, and that's Mordecai. Mordecai knows who Haman is. Haman knows who Mordecai is. And while all these hundreds and hundreds of people lay prostrate before Haman, who does he focus on? The one man, Mordecai, who stands up in defiance. And Mordecai is defying. It was the king's decree. Mordecai could have been put to death for that. In fact, Haman plans on that. But Mordecai never bows down the knee. We don't know why. It's kind of like, don't you want to kind of be quiet? You're a Jew in Persia, you know, keep it quiet. You know, everything be cool. Mordecai wasn't about to do that at all. He stood up. He stood up for what he was. Now, Mordecai got so angry, excuse me, Haman got so angry with that that during one of the king's uh, Friday night, you know, poker and drinking parties, he says to the king, listen, hey, king, you know, there's, these, there's just a couple of hundred people in our country they don't follow your laws. They don't dress like us. They, like the fact they, 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 they make disgusting jokes about you. They don't worship our God or follow our laws. They just cause problems. They're problem people. And I suggest we just kind of take them out. You know, just pick a day. Everybody kills one of these bad people, and we're done. Does not even mention the name Jew. Just says a small group of bad people. And the king, again, not paying attention to sleep as a switch, kind of goes, sounds great to me takes off, the king takes off his ring, his signet ring, and says to Haman, write a law, put this on it, and it'll be done. Haman is, he's got the ring. He can make a law now, and he does. He makes a, he calls on all the satraps and all the scribes and, and people he can find in all the languages he can find. And he writes down all this stuff about the law, which is, in 12 months, on the 13th day, everybody may kill a Jew for the day. In fact, you can kill as many Jews as you want. The more you kill, the better. And everything the Jews own then becomes yours. You get their home, you get their property. But no Jew should live 12 months from now on the 13th day of that month. And so that law goes out from out the nation. Why, why was it 12 months? Because Haman is so angry, he wanted to make sure it got to every corner of the empire from Ethiopia to Pakistan to Turkey. Not just the capital city, everywhere. Everywhere it had to go. And on top of that, Haman begins to build gallows, a hanging place, in his own front yard, five stories tall. He wanted Mordecai for not bowing down to hang there for all to see. He was out to kill and humiliate the Jews completely. Well, when Mordecai finds out about this law, he is distressed. And he starts tearing his clothes and he puts ashes on his head, ashes on his face. Now, he's standing at the gate of the city. He has noticed. And again, you don't want the king to see anybody unhappy around him because the gate should be the happiest place on earth. It's the entrance to Disneyland. Okay? 
But Mordecai is mourning and mourning and just making a terrible thing about it. And finally, Esther finds out through one of the eunuchs passing information back and forth. And the eunuch comes to Esther and kind of goes, you know your uncle? He's, man, he's looking pretty bad. He's not shaving. Uh, kind of like the band leader here, you know. He's just looking bad all the time. <laughs> and so Esther, bless her heart, she gathers up a whole bunch of clothes and sends them out to Mordecai. And say, Mordecai, here's the spring collection from Neiman Marcus. I think you'll find something you like, you know, put it on, wash up. Don't do this anymore. You're going to draw attention to yourself. And Mordecai then sends a message back to Queen Esther and says, listen, have you not heard about the law? I've given a copy of the law to this eunuch. Let him read it to you. So the eunuch reads it to Esther, and the law basically says, on the 13th day of the 12th month of Ador, every Jew in the nation will be slaughtered and killed. We don't know exactly what Esther's response was, but it almost sounded like her response was, well, tough. And Mordecai says, wait, you're a Jew. <laughs> but I'm in, the, I'm, in the, I'm in the harem, I'm in the castle. And Mordecai says, remember this, Esther. You were an orphan Jewish girl. You became queen. Do you think that maybe you became the queen of Persia for such a time as this? Esther began thinking about it. Esther continues to argue and says, by the way, you can't go before the king without permission or getting on the docket. He hasn't seen me for over 30 days. He's been really busy and all that. I just can't go before the king without an invitation. I'll see what I can do. Mordecai says, see what you can do. You must go before the, the king now. The death sentence has been passed. We need rescue. We need relief. So Esther finally then becomes from a young little queen to more of a woman, when she says to Mordecai, all right, tell everybody in the capital city of Susa they are to pray for three days. They are to fast for three days. Then I will stand before the king, and if I perish, I perish. The little girl's grown up. She's taking on the weight of her people. So three days go by of praying and fasting. Queen Esther puts on her best robes, her best makeup. She walks into the presence of the king. Now again, the king has a docket of things he's going to do that day, and you never mess up the docket. You never mess up the plan. That's how people lose their heads. But Queen Esther walks in, and because she was not invited, she has the strong possibility of losing her head but she stands there about 200 feet away from the king in her beautiful robes, maybe her nicest smile, and just waits. And the entire pantheon of people around that room becomes silent. She's not on the docket. Oh, we're going to have an execution today. And the king picks up his scepter, which is a symbol of power and permission, and points it at Esther. That's permission for her to walk forward. He keeps it on her the whole time. If he drops it down, she's taken out and beheaded. If he sets it down, she's taken out to be put away for life. But the king holds the scepter out. Esther walks up to it, puts her hand on the scepter, and much to everybody's surprise, the king is really happy. Whoa, you are hot looking, honey. That's been, a, you know, sweetheart, it's been 30 days since we've had any time together. 
you've been working really hard, a lot of long nights and all that. I just really think, you know, we should get together. He goes, you know, I'm so in love. I'll give you half my kingdom. Half of my kingdom I'll give to you. Don't worry about that, king. It's okay. Listen, I want to give you a break here. I'm having a wonderful dinner tomorrow just for you and a few of your leaders over at my side of the, the, the castle over here. Would you come to that? Take a few days off. Give yourself a break. Head massages, you know, foot massages, good food, you know, uh, you know uh, um, sweet potato pancakes, your favorite stuff, you know. King says, you're right. I've been working hard. I'm going to take a break, and I'm going to come to the banquet. And when I come to the banquet, I'll tell you what I want. So they have this wonderful banquet. The banquets last a full day, by the way. All day long, the queen is giving the king everything he wants. The other men that came with the king are getting what they want, little foot massages, you know, little, you know getting their fingernails trimmed or whatever. You know, it's just, it's a wonderful day. They're all having a great time. At the end of the day, King Xerxes says, Esther, sweetheart, I love you. Come here, poopsie. You know, <laughs> what is it you want, honey? I want to give it to you. Did the Visa card max out again? You know, tell me, I'll cut off his head. You know? <laughs> She goes, no, it's not the Visa card. We're fine with that. But she said, I, oh, it's, it's been a long day, and I'm kind of tired. You are too. Come back tomorrow. I have another, you know, maybe we'll do desserts tomorrow. Um, but come back tomorrow, and I, then I have no more games. I'll tell you exactly what I want, and we'll go from there. She said, oh, but when you come, just you and Haman come, okay? Just the two of you. Okay. So they all leave, and the Bible tells us Haman is strutting like a rooster. He is home. He's pounding his chest. I am having dinner with lunch with the queen tomorrow. Again, just me and the king, the king and me. Who cares if the king's there? It's all about me. Haman is just so in full of himself. He's having a great experience here. So the second luncheon starts. And the queen, Esther, takes part of all that. And so uh, at the end of the thing, the king finally says, All right, sweetheart, what do you want? And Queen Esther approaches him and she says, I, I really want my life. I really want the life of my people. That's weird. What are you talking about, Esther? My life has been threatened. I'm to be killed. And my people are to be killed. And the king jumps up and goes, What? Who dare threaten the queen? No one will do this. She goes, It's that man Haman. <laughs> I could see the grapes rolling out of Haman's mouth now. He must have come slack at his joints. Oh, you know, it's, it's over with. And she goes, all the Jews are to be killed, king, and I am a Jew. At that point, Haman had to just have died in his reaction. The king is so upset, so upset. He runs into the garden, away from where they're having dinner right now, trying to figure it out. By this time, servants are running into the banquet area going, we heard the king yell, not a good sign. And they're all standing around. Haman, by this point, is so beside himself, he, goes into, he walks over to the queen and falls on top of her. She's laying on a divan. He falls on top of her. You were not even allowed to touch the queen, even on her hand. Only the king could touch the queen. And Haman's now laying across the top of her. I bet you Esther must have gone, help <laughs> the king comes running back in probably looking for some what we're going to do here and he goes are you kidding me you would have your way with the queen in my house well by that time the queen the, the king didn't even know what to say 
The servants run over and say, we got a plan. They put a bag over Haman's head. And they just start drinking it. By the way, Haman's front yard, there's a gallows. We can put him there. And the king says, do it. <laughs> and Haman is dragged out, hung on the gallows he had built for Mordecai. And then the king was crestfallen and said, what do we do? Queen Esther says, I know this guy at the gate. His name is Mordecai. He's pretty good with the law. Maybe we can kind of bring him in. So Mordecai comes in, and they make a new law. And that, because they can't do, do right with the old law. In the Persian Empire, once you made a law, it was law. But, but Mordecai had a new law, which said, the Jews can defend themselves and any groups they want to on that particular day, and anybody that helps a Jew gets rewarded. So now the tables are turned. If I help a Jew, I'm a good guy. If I kill a Jew, oh, I'm a bad guy. So the people are saved, and um, they live happily ever after. The, the point of it here is the queen had saved her people through the law of Mordecai, through her being a faithful queen. She had done what she was called to do, and she had spared her people. And on March 18th of this month, the Jews celebrate a holiday. Anybody know what that is? Purim. Where does that holiday come from? Esther. The Jews celebrate the three days of prayer and fasting because that spared the Jews. Now think of these Jews. They did not go back to the land of Israel. They really felt cut off from God. They didn't deserve it. In fact, this death penalty might have been, we, we brought this on ourselves. We don't deserve to live or to survive. It's not going to be good for us. And yet God had provided through a queen and through Mordecai a way to keep his promise. My people will not perish, and I shall watch after that and after them for all my days. What a lovely story that God gives to us. But that's the Old Testament. Does God make promises to us in today? And he does. God cares for us and makes promises for us today. And I want you in the back of your bullet to notice this is it. Jesus promises to be with us. You get that up in the slide or not today? Anyway, the words are, be with us in that first blank. Jesus promises to be with us. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, and Joshua 1 through 5. Listen to the promise of God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Wasn't that pretty much what he said to the Jews as well? He says it to us as his children. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, is Jesus just talking pretty nice words and gentle things to make us feel good, kind of puff us up? Jesus is simply saying, I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to abandon you when everything goes wrong. When you think because of your sin, you deserve destruction. When you think that something goes wrong in your home, that you somehow are a terrible person and God doesn't love you. God does care for you. God will be with you. And when he sees you weeping for your children, for your spouse, for the fact you've lost, you're losing your home or you've lost your job, Jesus weeps with you. He hates to see his children in that kind of pain. Jesus also promises to carry our burdens, to carry our burdens. Matthew 11, 28 to 31. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
So many of us feel the Christian life is a burden. It is hard. It is not. It is a love relationship between you and God. Do you ever have an image of God in your mind that God is smiling at you? Or do you think he's always frowning at you? How can you love someone and frown at them? Would anybody here be married if you looked at your your spouse and said, I love you? (laughs) She'd say, fine, go love somebody else. I need a little more enthusiasm here, folks. So basically, God loves you. He takes our burdens. He wants to hear about your struggles. He doesn't get bored. He doesn't get tired of hearing your prayers. He wants to hear you. He wants you to recognize that. Tell me what's going on. Not because he does not know, but he wants you to boil it down to, this is what I'm going through. I'm fearful. I'm worried. I'm panicked. I'm tempted to do things my way and not God's way. Jesus says, give it to me, no matter how heavy or hard it is, how ugly, how dirty it may feel to you, I will take care of it. And Jesus' other promise to us is eternal life. Eternal life. If God is for us and we have eternal life, really, what are you worried about? Your 401k is not fully funded? Whose is? (laughs) But guess what? My eternal life is fully funded. It was paid for in full. It's not just about living in the by and by and when I'm all gone, everything will be great. It's living with the confidence that my future is secure. 1 John 2, 24-25 Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. What did you hear from the beginning? God loves you. And what you heard from the beginning abides in you. Then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life if our future is secure and it is take those anxieties and those worries and those need to control everything and try to figure everything out you lay in bed at night coming up with new plans and new plans definitely God wants us to think but God also simply says let me worry about that give it to me and trust in me would you close in prayer with me Precious Father, we ask that we do remember these things, that you are with us and you want to be with us. You carry our burdens and you want to carry our burdens. And Father, that we truly have eternal life. And Lord, we are so grateful for that. Remind us of these things, Father. Remind us what you can do with the people that was in some ways rebellious to you, like we often are. And yet, you took care of them. You fulfilled your promises to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.